This is God's word, given to us, his people, for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. Romans 8, verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. And then let us go to our catechism questions for this evening. Page 59 in the back of our blue hymnal. 59 in the back. Lord's Day 46. We're considering the first phrase of the Lord's Prayer this evening. Our Father in heaven. Question 120 I'll read the question, we can respond together with one voice. Why did Christ command us to call God our Father? At the very beginning of our prayer, Christ wants to kindle in us what is basic to our prayer, the childlike awe and trust that God through Christ has become our Father. Our fathers do not refuse us the things of this life. God, our Father, will even less refuse to give us what we ask in faith. Why the words, who art in heaven? These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty as something earthly and to expect everything for body and soul from his almighty power. One of the main stories in the news recently has, of course, been the, the devastation down in Houston from Hurricane Harvey. And it shows, perhaps, a sad reality of how polarized we have become as a sort of a, a political landscape how polarized everything is, and that uh, this week I kept coming across bickering, uh, people arguing about how and why certain people were helping others in Houston. There were people who were volunteering, uh, graciously giving of their time and their efforts and their resources, and sort of on the sidelines you had people arguing about what it means and, and what are the implications of this, and and ha-ha, this shows you, it got you kind of things. It shows, really, one of the sad realities of our day. One of the things that caught my eye was there was this ongoing discussion, you can perhaps call it an argument, about these pictures that kept popping up on the internet of men who were helping people who were clearly not their family. 
And there were all these sort of courageous and selfless acts that we could see over and over and over again. I'm thinking in particular of a picture of a man who was in a baseball cap and he was carrying a woman and through water about waist high. And that woman was holding her infant child. So you had this very beautiful picture of how God has structured the world so that people can help one another. A man carrying a woman and the woman holding her infant child. I say that not to bring up a a cultural trend so much as to, to show that there's something present in our world that should grate against our biblically informed minds. It should tell us that something is wrong. And that message that we often get out in the world nowadays is something like this. Masculinity is toxic and destructive. All men are dangerous to those around them. You often hear that kind of thinking and that kind of talking. Of course, we should start off by saying that we should all admit that men are far from perfect creatures. Far from it. And some very far from it. And certainly it is a horrible reality when a man uses the power and the strength that has been given him to tyrannize and to abuse those in his life. There's perhaps nothing that is more uh, evil in terms of selfishness that we see in this world. But that does not, of course, mean that all men, all husbands, all fathers are just waiting for the moment when they will be forced to show who they really are in terms of evil. I have known, I've been blessed to know men, many of them, who would rather go through ten times the pain and suffering if it meant they could keep their families from it. And that is the message from Scripture of what it means to be a man, selfless, of what it means to be a husband or a father, And it is this that must inform us as we come to prayer, specifically prayer to our Father in heaven and the privilege that we have of calling out to God as our Father in heaven. This is a cultural trend that I have noticed, but that has been something that's been present in the field of theology for a long, long time. Many biblical scholars and theologians feel that we need to strip our language of all references to God as Father in order that we might break free of these patterns of what they might call patriarchy and so that we might get past this archaic way of thinking about God. But the good news for us tonight is that the comfort and the joy which comes from this passage of Paul is just as applicable to us tonight as it was for the early church. And the privilege of calling God our Father is just as important a privilege that we must treasure as it was for the first audience of the letter of Romans. And Paul in this passage is speaking really primarily about the Holy Spirit and the benefits of the Holy Spirit to the Christian, but he ends up talking about God as our Father and specifically about God, our Father, in prayer. Thus, we will look at this passage. There are many different ways to come at this passage, but we will uh, come to this passage contemplating, considering prayer, and specifically praying to God as our Father. What we see in Romans 8 is that the more we grow in our understanding of having God as our Father, the more we will find it natural to, to cry out to him in prayer. 
the more we grow in our understanding of having God as our Father in Christ, the more we will find it natural to cry out to him in prayer. Three ideas to leave you with this evening. We see that God is three things. He is an adopting father, an adopting father. We see that God is Abba Father, Abba Father. And finally, we see that God is a generous father. I'm always tempted to try and make the alliterations work. And so I toyed with having that third point be that God is an altruistic father. But I figured if I did that just for the alliteration, that would be kind of ridiculous. So the third point is not that God is an altruistic father. If you want that, then I'll just leave that for you. That's probably how I'll remember it. But God is a generous father. Let's look at these first three verses together, verses 12 through 14, to consider God as an adopting father. Let us look then here together. In Romans chapter 8, Paul has this general movement of past and present and future. In Romans 8, at the beginning, he begins to talk about what Christ has done to the reality of our past. He has defeated it. He has set us free. And then he begins to talk about the implications for what that means for our present life. What does it mean that Christ has set us free from sin and death? And what does it mean that we have the Holy Spirit? He has mentioned the Holy Spirit in chapter 7, but he returns to talk about the Holy Spirit more fully here in chapter 8. And what he says is that the Holy Spirit is so connected to life-giving that all those who share in the power of the Holy Spirit have the same eternal life that the Spirit has. The Spirit becomes a guarantee to eternal life. Paul considers that then at the beginning of Romans chapter 8. And then he comes to our passage this evening, verse 12, to talk about the believer's relationship to the flesh. This is the first thing that he considers in this passage before us. And what he says is that we have no obligation to the flesh. Our translation calls it the sinful nature, the sinful nature. And flesh is probably a better translation there. We have no obligation uh, to the flesh. What Paul likely means is a term that summarizes or embodies everything that stands opposed to God as it relates to who we are. Christ has defeated He has silenced the sinful nature, but of course we know in our own life that there's still this reality, this struggle, this push-pull. The best way to understand it is we still have these vestiges of the sinful nature, these these flickers of darkness, not flickers of light. Think about them as flickers of darkness that try to pull us back in to all that we were before the spiritual life that is given to us in Christ. And Paul says that this, the flesh, we have no obligation to it. Why do we have no obligation to it? Christ has set us free from it. Christ has paid the price of our sin and has set us free. And because Christ has set us free, the Spirit creates a new reality. The Spirit gives us new obligations and new life. So Paul from that moves to a warning. And he warns his readers by laying out two parallel thoughts that tell us something about all those who are the children of God. He begins by saying that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
This does not mean if, if you ever do something wrong or if you ever have a sinful thought or carry out a sinful, sinful action, you will die. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul compares two ways of living. Living according to the flesh, according to all of those, those flashes of darkness, and according to the spirits. And his point here at the beginning is that the believer is not obligated, does not have a debt, no ongoing relationship to their sinful nature. That ongoing relationship has been cut off by Christ, cut off by the reality that the Holy Spirit creates in those who believe in the gospel, who have faith in Christ. These are the ways that we must think about the sinful nature, the flesh. It has been silenced. Christ has defeated it. But we have inherited genes, don't we? Our natural family is the family of Adam, a family of sin and death, a family where sin and death reign. The idea of a family is probably the best way for us to think about all of this, for us to think about the Christian life. Because Paul is going to frame everything in the rest of this passage around the truth that we are members of the family of God in Christ. A family is the best way to think about all of this. And this brings us back to what Paul says in verse 12. He's, talking, he's going to be talking about the family of God. It brings us back to what he says in verse 12, that we have an obligation We have no obligation to our former family, but that leaves half of it unanswered, doesn't it? The point is that we do have an obligation, and that obligation is to our new family, the first family of our sinful nature, the family of Adam, the family of sin and death. That had not given us any blessings or any of the privileges that are experienced by the family of God. Our first family had left us out in the cold, exposed to the ultimate defeat that this world can bring. In that time, in the Greco-Roman world, if anyone was forced to live as an orphan, they probably would have a very small chance of surviving, forced to live in utter starvation and exposure to all kinds of dangers. Paul is reminding us that although we are naturally part of that family, it is not anything like the family of God. In our first family, it was like being an orphan, exposed to the dangers of this life, under the reign of sin and death. And Paul is saying that we now have this obligation to a new family in Christ. In the Spirit, you are given this spiritual life and you have a new obligation And not living according to that new obligation, not not living, understanding that reality would be like a young child in the Greco-Roman world uh, who is an orphan and has nothing in this world and is battling starvation and going from day to day. And that child is taken in by a gracious and wealthy husband and wife. But the child says, no, I, I I don't want that. I'm going to continue living the way that I'm living. I'm going to ignore all of the blessings that you're offering to me. Most people would agree that living that way or making that kind of decision would be extremely odd. And that's what Paul is saying. It doesn't make sense that you would go on living as a member of your former family. But the reality of the Christian life is that it does take time, doesn't it? And that we see this in real life too. 
It takes a while to adjust to the ways of a new family. And the adjustment to the new ways of a family, the new rhythms of the, the, the rhythms of the new family, the practices of the new family, the rules of the new family, that really captures the struggle of the Christian life. Part of our, the family of our nature, the, the flashes of darkness that come up in our mind and in our hearts, all of that, that pulls us back. That's because we have a hard time adjusting to our new family, the family of God. But Paul says in the second half of verse 13, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. There's an ongoing struggle, isn't there? If you are putting to death the misdeeds of the body. Paul then admits, doesn't he, that this is not easy and that it will not always be visible in exactly the same way. There's no exact blueprint there's no exact mold for sanctification. There aren't these, these various checkpoints that everyone has to get here by six months and everyone has to be here at 12 months. It's difficult and it happens differently in everyone. It's a matter of learning the ways of the new family and living according to the new obligations that we have. It's mortifying sin, putting to death. Right? The, old word, the old English word for putting to death is mortifying. If you're familiar with the Reformed tradition, well-read in it, you probably think of John Owen's book, his classic, The Mortification of Sin. And this is what he says is the, the obligation, the duty of every Christian. He says this very famous line, Do you mortify sin? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. He really embodies Paul there in Romans 8. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. And that's exactly what Paul means in verse 14 when he says that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You often hear people talking this way, the Spirit led me to do this, the Spirit led me to do that. But what Paul is saying is those who are led by the Spirit of God in their struggle against sin are the sons of God. What does this remind us of? This reminds us that the way that we overcome sin is not by our own power. The overcoming of sin in our life only happens when we yield ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's counterintuitive to our human nature. Our our, our human nature is that we always think we need to, to do things. We need to achieve our standing before God. We need to to, to impress him and then he will give more blessing in our overcoming of sin. But it's only when we yield to the power. We talked about that last week. Remember the, Jesus says, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. That, that call by Jesus is a call to relinquish control. To relinquish control. Deny yourself. Take yourself off the throne of your life. Be led by the Holy Spirit in your struggle against sin. These are the sons of God, those who are led by the Holy Spirit in this way. You are the sons of God, part of his family. And because of that, you are given a new obligation. But all of this shows us, doesn't it, that God is an adopting father. This is a a magnificent picture of grace. Those who are sinful, those who are locked out in the cold, That is what it means to be a part of Adam's family. But God can bring people in, adopt them, make him part of his family. He is an adopting father. He is also 
Abba, Father. He is Abba, Father. In verse 15, we see Paul continue on this train of thought, which is that once you are adopted, once you are part of the family, you do not need to live in fear that your father will kick you out of the family. That's not how adoption works, right? Thankfully, that's not how adoption works. The father takes on a a new child as his responsibility with all of their challenges, with all of their misdeeds, with all of the headaches and worrying that the new child may cause. The father takes it all on and says, this child is now my responsibility. Adoption is real in the real world and as it relates to God. When you adopt a child, you don't say, well, if, if, if this child misbehaves today, then they're not mine anymore. Adoption makes someone just as much your child as someone to whom you give birth. Adoption is real. Adoption is real and it cannot be reversed. But what Paul tells us in verse 15 is that what remains of our flesh in this life those flashes of darkness, the vestiges of our sinful nature, will try to convince us that we are really not part of God's family. That's what our flesh does to us, and that's part of the struggle of the Christian life. We'll try to convince you that you are not part of God's family. Imagine being an orphan in the Greco-Roman world and being adopted, being brought into a new family by one of the wealthiest families in the city in which you live. And imagine walking through the marketplace and in fresh clothes after you have been taken in and with all of the things that testify to your new identity. But there are people in that marketplace that know where you came from. There are people in that marketplace that saw you before you were adopted. And these people sneer at you and hurl insults at you. And they say to you, you'll never be a part of that family. We know where you came from. You're nothing but a poor beggar. That is what our flesh, as Paul calls it, tries to convince us of. Our flesh tries to convince us that God could never actually make us a part of his family. That God's desire to adopt is not strong enough to overcome our sin. Paul does not mean that everything that's physical or material is bad when he talks about the flesh. Again, he is using this as these, uh, the, the bearing of the marks of the sinful nature. And of course, we all can relate to this, can't we? The pulling of our flesh, the, the hurling of, of insults that, that we convince ourselves God is not gracious enough to actually make us his child. In the wake of another failing, another time where we act like someone enslaved to sin rather than someone who's set free from sin. Another time where we act like we don't belong to God and we are fed those thoughts, your sin is too great. You are not a child of God. You cannot overcome your constant failings and struggles. But the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, testifies to something else entirely. The Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit testifies to a greater truth, which teaches and assures us that we are no longer orphans or beggars, but we are the children of God. But the Spirit not only teaches us, the Spirit not only assures us, the Spirit also helps us to pray. Verse 15, Paul says that it is by the power of the Spirit of God that we cry out, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit helps us to pray. We do not cry out in fear. We do not cry out in fear because we know adoption is real. We know that God has taken the responsibility of having us as our children upon himself. We do not cry out in fear. We cry out, Abba, Father. Paul uses this Aramaic term, Abba, one that has been discussed and at length throughout the history of the church. It's a beautiful term because it combines reverence and respect and tenderness and intimacy all in one. Some people think it it leans more in the irreverent direction, and, and that's not right. In the Aramaic world, the father, the patriarch, was someone who was always revered, always respected. But this term, Abba, was one that captured his position and his office as father, but then also the tenderness and intimacy and compassion that he felt for his children, for those who were part of his family. And that is what we have in our Heavenly Father, a Father who is powerful, a Father who is mighty, a Father who deserves our reverence and our respect and our worship and our adoration, but also a Father who loves us with an everlasting love, who has compassion towards us, who is interested not in our ills, but in our goods. His love is like a father's to his children, plenteous in love. And is here in Verse 15, that Paul is is speaking about the power of the Spirit, the struggle against sin, but he gets to prayer. He begins to discuss prayer. We cry out, Abba, Father. It would be most natural to cry out, Abba, Father, in prayer. Paul is talking about prayer. So the Catechism reminds us that it is this part of our prayer which teaches us that we are to have a childlike awe and trust In God, it kindles in us a childlike awe and trust because as we call on God as our Father, all of these things are to come to mind. God is our adopting Father. God is our Abba Father. God loves us so much. Just like the child who feels worried or scared or in trouble, unable to help themselves, and what do they do? They start looking for their parent. Where's mom? Where's dad? That's what the children of God are to do in prayer. God has bound himself to us and he will not give us a stone if we ask for bread. But the awe and the trust that is to be kindled in us is is helped along as we realize, as the catechism again goes on to remind us, that it is through Christ that God is our Father. It's through Christ that God is our Father. In the Gospel of Mark In chapter 14, we have the account of Jesus praying in Gethsemane. And he cries out. He cries out to his father and he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Here we see that the very intimacy that Jesus has with his father, with his heavenly father, is the intimacy that is granted to us when we come to God through Jesus Christ. But take notice also of the time when Jesus calls out to God as his Abba Father. It's right before he goes to the cross, isn't it? And he asks his Father that the cup of judgment might be taken from him. But he says, yet let your will be done. Let your will be done. The cup of judgment was not removed from Christ. 
He had to go all the way to the cross. His Abba Father loved him as he prayed to him in Gethsemane. But Jesus had to go to the cross so that the very same Father as whom he calls Abba, that he might become our Abba Father. So that Christ might present us to this Heavenly Father as the washed and clean children who can now use this very same term to cry out to their Heavenly Father. He is Abba Father. This, thus in the fight in which we engage against sin, let us remember that the sins we so easily fall into, the many ways in which we often fall short, all of those particular struggles that we have, It was for those sins that Jesus was killed, that Jesus was mortified. So as we seek to mortify our own sin, may we remind ourselves that those very sins that we struggle with, Jesus was mortified for those on the cross in order to bring us into the household of his heavenly father. If that doesn't help us in our struggle against sin, perhaps nothing will. Jesus mortified for our sin that he might present us to his Father, washed and clean. The Father loved us so much that he gave that Son for us, his perfect Son, who called him Abba Father. And knowing that is what produces the childlike awe and trust that we most acutely feel in prayer. Childlike awe and trust through Christ, God is our Heavenly Father. And then finally, God is a generous Father. God is a generous Father. In this passage, Paul oscillates back and forth between calling us the sons of God and the children of God and uses two different terms. Most scholars think that particularly in in verse 14, in verse 14 he uses the technical term for sons in order to signify for us that everyone, men, women, children... All of us have the the, the technical term sons applied to us to show us that we all have the same share in the inheritance. In the Greco-Roman world, it would have been the sons, and particularly the firstborn sons, who would have been given the inheritance. We live in a time when inheritances generally are sort of spread out somewhat evenly. It was not the way back then. But Paul says all of us are sons of God, in verse 14, to show that all of us equally share in the inheritance that is found in Christ. There's no such classification like that in Christ. All our children, all our sons, all our heirs, all our co-heirs with Christ. But it's not earthly riches, is it, that God the Father is concerned with pouring out upon us. It's not earthly riches. It goes beyond that. We call upon our Father in heaven to be reminded that we are calling out to one who is full, not of earthly majesty, but heavenly. We call out to God knowing that he can give us not just earthly treasures, but heavenly treasures. And thus prayer flips our, our, our natural conception of things on its head. It is, it is in prayer that we begin to understand that the heavenly treasure is so much more valuable. As we call out to God as our Father, we begin to understand this God who is so majestic in the heavens, stands ready to give heavenly blessings that are so much more valuable than the things that we have on earth. What is it that our Father gives to us in and through prayer? What are the heavenly blessings that he stands ready to give? 
When we know and when we understand God as our Father, we more naturally cry out to Him as our Father. And that truth begins to sink into our hearts, and by the power of the Spirit, He he emboldens us and He nourishes us through His prayer. He gives us things like this. We will walk through this world more thankfully. We'll walk through this world more thankfully. Once you start to realize that God is your Heavenly Father, you will be filled with thankfulness, with thanksgiving. You will walk through this world more thankfully. You will work more cheerfully because you will understand that your Heavenly Father has called you to be just where you are, to serve Him day in and day out, that He has called you to that place, and God does not make mistakes. So wherever He has placed you, wherever He has called you to serve Him, you will do so more cheerfully. You will suffer more patiently, knowing that His will is perfect, knowing that He is working out what is best for us always. You will fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil more courageously. Be filled with more courage, knowing that you're not fighting by your own strength. You are coming in the name of the Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth. You will live for God's glory more freely, because you will see that it is God uh, who is the, the king of the heavens and the earth. And to know that it is his glory for which we were made. We were made so that we might glorify him. We will live for that glory more freely. We will accept God's providence more contentedly. Which is is very difficult sometimes. But we know that if God is sovereign, if he loves us, if he is our heavenly father, then he has shown us exactly who it is. Exactly how much he cares for us when he sent his son to die for us. Being in control of all things, we look at him and his will and his providence and we accept it more contentedly. These are all the things, the heavenly blessings which our Father gives to us in prayer that we might walk through this life seeking to serve him more and seeking to glorify his name in our lives, in Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you We are so grateful for all that you give and continue to give us day in and day out. You are a good God. We thank you for Jesus Christ in whom we have redemption. We look to him in faith tonight and ask by the power of your spirit you would send us out into the world ready to live for you and serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.